Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Mike Gaffari, who is a partner at Canvas Ventures, a firm that specializes on leading Series A rounds. Some of their investments include Fly Homes, New Breaks, and Zola. This is Mike's second time on Consumer VC, and he's actually our first second-time guest. His first appearance, we went deep on how to evaluate and invest in marketplace businesses. On this episode, we discuss what is the next big thing in consumer after the iPhone. Is it Web3, or is it the metaverse, or remote work applications, or is it something completely different? I loved this conversation with Mike, and I think you will as well. Without further ado, here he is. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? You are our first second time guest. Oh, wow. I'm honored. Thank you. I'm doing great. And I'm really happy to be the first second time guest. That's exciting. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on way back when, a couple of years ago. And uh, it's so so great to, to, to obviously uh, have a chat here again. Yeah, absolutely. I know we spoke a couple months ago and you mentioned how Funnily enough, even though this is a consumer podcast, this is actually the perfect entrepreneurial landscape for B2B. What did you actually mean by that? Yeah, you know, and I don't know if I would say perfect, but that's one way of describing it. I guess I would say that what happened is we've had several decades of platform cycles that were really great for consumer apps and innovation. So first we had, you know, the, the 1990s and a PC revolution. Then in the 2000s, kind of a broadband internet penetration, you know, really got there at higher speeds. And then the 2010s was really defined by the decade of, I would say, the iPhone and Android and the mobile revolution. And so roughly every decade, it didn't always quite line up, you know, like broadband penetration started even in the mid to late 90s more. iPhone came out in 2007, App Store launched, I believe, in 2008. So some of this stuff hit a little bit earlier, but the bottom line is roughly every decade, you had a, a nice big platform. And so an explosion of consumer apps would come up and we kind of, we can dig into that. A lot of this is fairly obvious to you and and your audience who've been studying it. Not everyone always pauses to reflect on is that we've been sitting here now for 13 years without any major new platform. And so the question is, will it be 23 years? Like, will we go another decade without having a new platform? We can talk about what some platform candidates for consumer are. But I don't think any clear winner has emerged with the kind of scale that the last three had. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of B2B innovation is at this point in the cycle with the previous platforms as well, people are always doing B2B in parallel with consumer. But when the consumer platforms get stale, then you really see a lot of entrepreneurial energy focused on B2B just because they see less white space in consumer and they start trying things that might be less glamorous, less obvious use cases, not things that their their mom or their kids or they themselves and their peers can use, but things that they're seeing a business need for. And it's a great time for B2B innovation. And so you see a lot of consumer investors like myself who are also doing B2B during this period. 
But I think we would all be disingenuous if we didn't kind of say that my heart is still very much in consumer and I would love to see a new platform and more consumer innovation, more of that opportunity. And it's out there, but it, it, there's no denying that it's very picked over feeling right now. It's really interesting that you say that because I started this podcast right before COVID hit. And I felt like right before COVID, back in when I started in October 2019, B2B was very much on investors' minds. Or, or if you are a generalist, maybe you sway more towards B2B. And then COVID happened, and I felt like there was maybe a shift in the pendulum or not that there wasn't any love for B2B, but, but consumer became interesting again. There was a consumer boom for COVID. You see it with Clubhouse. You see it with anybody that could help enable people, you know, video chat, video apps, and remote work that was more personalized. I think Superhuman, which I invested in technically enterprise app, but it's more of a consumer app in many ways. A lot of this stuff really took off. And I was thinking like, could COVID be the platform? But I just don't know that it's a 10 year, it was a massive shift in behavior in a short period of time that to your point, you know, we'll, we'll see the story's not fully written, but I think it's more like a one or two year little surge in activity, but not necessarily the way the lasting kind of decade of platform effects we've seen with others. So what do you think about what is the next platform beyond the iPhone, beyond mobile? What what are some candidates that you're thinking about? So look, I think there have been a lot of candidates with a lot of hype. Uh, the first one I'll just call out, we're spending a lot of time as a firm in as well, which is Web3, this broad, you know, people would love to, I mean, that would be easy. That would be the most convenient if we just had Web1 and then we had Web 2.0 that came like right in time for mobile. Web 2.0 was kind of, a, I believe, took steam like mid 2000s that, and right before the iPhone launch. And then a lot of the Web 2.0 companies like Yelp, where I spent a long time, Facebook and others, LinkedIn, they said, hey, we're, we're making new, taking new advantage of the web in ways that the 1999, 2000 companies didn't. And then they caught the wave of the iPhone right as it launched. And so Web 2.0 kind of neatly just rolled into mobile. Now, if Web3 came, and, and by the way, if there's some other big technology advancement on the order of magnitude of the iPhone that kind of comes with it, that would be great. The one challenge I'll call out with Web3, and we're spending a ton of time there, I still see a lot of B2B there. You know, there's consumer fintech applications, but and we can talk about Web3 means, but it's an umbrella term that has a lot of you know components like blockchain, crypto, NFT, tokens. It doesn't have to be fintech. It doesn't have to be cryptocurrencies but they kind of loom heavily. There's DAOs, DAOs, um, and, and a lot of stuff there. So there's a lot to talk about. And I can talk about the vision of, of Web3 a little bit, which is Web1.0 was like very platform dominated and very controlled. Web2.0 was a user revolution. Users made all this content, but still controlled by the platforms. The promise of Web3 is you control your own content, you own it, you have the rights, like that it's truly decentralized. Some of the original promises of the open web, that's kind of the idea, but I think it's very early days to see. So that's the top candidate to throw out because I think the most entrepreneurial energy is being thrown in there. But let me just rattle off a few other candidates of what I've heard as potential platforms and we could dive into any of these. Another big one I would say is virtual reality, augmented reality, and then the metaverse in general. And the metaverse might blend into Web3, that's the funny thing you're starting to see now, or it might be its own separate VR category. You know, like Facebook and other companies, they're not, you know, while they've done some crypto, they're coming at, at meta and metaverse much more from a VR angle. And so that people were hoping VR, it seemed like the natural follow-up to an iPhone, but, but it hasn't created the kind of 
broad-based user penetration um, and explosive growth to allow consumer app developers to say, this is a big enough platform. And it might be interesting to talk through, like when I was an app developer, you know, I co-founded Stitcher, the podcast app, and I was doing Yelp, we would always be looking like, what are the, how many, what's the install base of these different platforms? What's Apple got? What's Microsoft got? What's Google got? What's Samsung got? What's Amazon's launching a phone? What, what do they have going? What does this country have? And because as an app developer, you don't want to build for an audience of a maximum of, you know, a million people or a couple, and then you're only going to get a small percentage. So that's been a challenge for VR. COVID as a platform, we talked about, I think, remote first and remote work, uh, remote workers as a platform, that's an area. Another area that's, I think, come up a lot as a potential platform is AI and big data. But again, it tends to just skew B2B. That's a tougher one to see as, as being a consumer platform, but you might see consumer applications. Regulatory as a platform is something that's come up quite a bit. So there's been a few pundits like Mary Meeker in her annual report for a few years, uh, Benedict Evans and others who they put out like reg tech and regulatory. Again, skews a little more B2B. And then voice is an area that people were hoping to be a platform. Everyone thought, oh, VAPS voice apps and Amazon Echo and Alexa, that could be a big area. You know, we've been holding our breath on some of that. The car is one we're all waiting for. If Apple finally launches a car, if Tesla really goes big on third-party apps, you know, obviously there's driver distraction and other issues there. So there's a bunch of these platforms in waiting, things people want to be a platform, you know, related to voice or chat apps. But again, as, a, as an app developer, as an entrepreneur, you're not seeing any of these really having the exit velocity of the last three, of like the PC revolution, the broadband revolution, the, you know, the mobile revolution. With the exception of Web3, I would say, having that potential right now. Yeah, no, I mean, those are a number a number of different opportunities in terms of how we just think through what the next paradigm shift could be. I wonder, just for those that might not know that much about Web3, like, obviously, with the iPhone, you know how your life has changed with an iPhone, right? And the applications and overall your habits. What do you think about if Web3 were to succeed, how does they be a consumer habit or what or different applications that a consumer does day to day? How does that change? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, you know, part of the promise of Web3 is that you take more ownership, more autonomy, and more kind of self-control over your own content, your own creativity, what you contribute. So there could be a change of like, hey, I get more invested. Maybe you have a generation of people who create more, they're more artistic, or they contribute more, they, they, you know, they write more, or they make more digital art. Maybe that's visual, maybe that's audio music, you know, even podcasters, right? Like you and me right now on this, you know, you, you are taking, it's not like you're as captive to any one platform, but then you kind of are like most of your listenership probably happens through the Apple app as, you know, the founder of a, of a legacy like podcast app Stitcher. I know that like Apple still kind of dominates probably for your listenership. No third party platform took off. Maybe you really would have, could have more of a direct connection to consumers. So both your listeners would somehow more have a direct relationship with you, not intermediated by Apple. And you would also take advantage of those direct relationships. That's why I think you're seeing a lot of Web3 creator focused um, apps, but but that's exactly the thing. The, it's all about like creator innovation. I haven't seen as the consumer, like let's say the listener or the viewer or the reader, those benefits really accruing. It's more about, but but there are some startups that are doing when they help bridge that relationship, like maybe you could give me exclusive content. So maybe fans and consumers of content 
get special access, they get tokens, they get some ownership, they feel a part of it. You know, like maybe when you launch your show and I was an early guest, maybe I could somehow get tokens in your show or share in the ownership and then the show does well and then I'm, I'm financially participating in that. that. You know, there are some different ideas, but we just haven't seen widespread. I think if you ask the average consumer like, hey, is there some cool new Web3 application that's like changed the way you use technology and really made you feel different in how you're enjoying. I just don't think that same thing versus like when you've got your iPhone in a box, right? And then in 2008, the app store launch and you're like, whoa, I'm downloading these new apps. And like, now I'm like, I'm ride hailing and then I'm like ordering food and like going in Yelp, I'm finding new restaurants. And I can even find a plumber on here and I'm doing my social networking all my phone. Whoa, like I, this is all this new stuff I couldn't do in, in the palm of my hand anymore. You don't quite have that feeling. VR has that potential, by the way. I think that's why metaverse is so tantalizing for so many people and technologists is the VR could have that big aha, whoa, breakthrough feeling for consumers. It just doesn't have the install base. And I think their big challenge is the friction of start stop is very high. So on a phone, you just whip it out and you start playing with it. VR, you got to put it on. I don't know if you've used Oculus, but you have to set up your guardian boundaries. Can never seem to remember my guardian boundary. It's just, there's a lot of friction getting that session. You might bump into people. What's the space? It's, it's just challenging in that regard. Millions and millions of consumers have participated in Web3, if you count, like just starting by buying Bitcoin, buying Ethereum, buying these new coins, buying NFTs, like so as participants and then consuming content that has a Web3 spin on it. You know, like if TikTok was started today, it would probably, you know, it, it could very well be a Web3 based platform. And maybe, maybe that's all it's gonna take is the next massive TikTok consumer facing platform where the creators are super motivated to have a big Web3 element to it. Maybe that, that will lead to the big consumer adoption as well. And it all kind of blends together. Um, so that's the opportunity. We haven't seen it yet, I don't, I don't think, or it's very early days. It's too, too early for, um, for us to notice it um, at any kind of scale, but maybe it's coming soon. What have you seen? I've also read about how, I mean, people at least post about how if you are a Web2 company, you really need to be thinking about Web3 or maybe modding into a Web3 type of business. What does that mean to you? I know we've touched on a little bit about Web3, but what does that mean to you? And if you are a Web 2.0 company, like how do you need to be thinking about um, Web3? Well, I think there's an analogy. It's kind of like when there was Web 2.0 and they caught good timing and then, and then mobile came out and everyone said, well, you need to have a mobile strategy. And it was absolutely right. And some companies like Yelp and Facebook, you know, Yelp I saw it firsthand, we did extremely well with catching the mobile wave at the right time going all in on mobile, like really making that a priority for the company. And that was a very, very smart bet. But again, it was a lot more obvious what to do. Like take our experience, put it on the small screen, make it awesome and use any new features of this device if we can. Like, boom, it was a no brainer. You know, use the GPS, use some of the new features. With Web3, it's not quite as obvious. There's not a new screen. I mean, that's the simplest way. Like platforms that we're used to, it's like a different screen or hardware format. This isn't some new hardware format. It's more of a new paradigm and new protocols and new ways of like doing economic exchanges as well as organizations with DAOs. So it's a little bit different. But I do think every company should think about their Web3 strategy. If, if for the only reason uh, being that 
there's such a, a widespread like groundswell of young entrepreneurial energy being poured into Web3 that if you're not thinking about how Web3 could reinvent your business, I guarantee you like some smart young person is doing that and trying to figure out how to rebuild your business that way. And so, so you should try and get ahead of that. And just like a lot of Web2 companies did really well in mobile, you should do that for Web3. But it's, it's not as obvious, it's tougher. And I, I also think lots of money and resources are gonna be seemingly wasted because they won't find the obvious way to port to Web3. But you should at least try to, to do it as successfully as like Yelp and Facebook and others did in the last transition. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point too, that, that it's just also not as obvious as um, as that transition to desktop to mobile, that uh, we're still obviously in the early innings, but there's also a lot to a lot to take in. I'd love to also talk about VR. VR is really back as an interesting market for VCs. What has changed? Well, I think a Oculus and other platforms have slowly but quietly like built up more and more millions of like the install base is getting noticeably large. The problem is like what kind of usage do people have on that install base? I, th- I heard secondhand, I, I don't know if it's confirmed, like Mark Zuckerberg gave a copy of uh, Ready Player One, which is a great book that I really enjoyed to every employee, you know, at Facebook and, and or at least certainly on the VR, you know, metaverse kind of teams and said, you've got to read this. That is, by the way, I mean, the one thing I think we have to be careful is like that's an extremely dystopian view of the future. It's not exactly like that, that much of an optimistic view of where technology will bring us if everyone's living in these like very depressing places and just trying to escape reality only with, with VR. The nice thing, my favorite part, by the way, of like the mobile revolution and the reason I worked at Yelp was when the phone actually helped open you up to better real world experiences, right? Rather than just always making you escape the real world, it actually enhanced the way you enjoy the real world by helping you find new businesses, new places, new parks, new trails, new friends, right? And then augmenting that real world experience. That's one challenge, like VR has a lot of promise, but it does take you out of the real world. I think that's why augmented reality, there's a lot of excitement also because there is an opportunity to actually enhance and improve your real world experience. And that could be interesting. AR, again, has just kind of gone back and forth. There's the magic and a couple, there's companies that have had a lot of hype around what they could do with AR and there's been promise of a bigger iPhone, Apple solution. So we'll see, it's interesting. Will this one be one where an incumbent kind of fang company comes in, Apple, Facebook, or otherwise, or does some new startup really come up with a, you know, an amazing uh, AR solution? That's actually a great point about does AR or even VR come from an incumbent or does it come from a startup? It reminds me a little bit, and this leads me into, you know, talking a bit more about Facebook and your reaction to maybe Facebook changing to meta and what uh, your takeaway from that. But also when I think about, you know, VR right now becoming a lot more popular, or I feel like there's just some type of uh, swell going on with VR, especially since Facebook maybe is one of those that are leading the charge. It just reminds me too, I was talking with Ray Ma, who's an expert when it comes to everything, all the the, the technological revolution that, that's happened in China. And she brought up live streaming and how live streaming is a multi-billion dollar industry in China. It really hasn't touched the surface here. And the reason why is because Alibaba, which is an incumbent, obviously, they made live streaming they were very focused on live streaming as their, as part of their core strategy and put it directly on the app dead center. And that's how live streaming took off where, 
you know, there's a lot of live streaming startups here in the U.S., but you haven't seen that incumbent push by like an Amazon, for example, looking for live stream, which would be similar. And I wonder when it comes to VR and maybe um, in parallel, are you seeing a little bit of that where a few years ago the incumbents weren't really maybe interested in it, where now you're actually seeing Facebook take a really big leap into betting on VR? And and I guess just what's your overall reaction there? So. First of all, yes, I think when the incumbents start pushing it and really saying like, this is the time, we should all take that seriously. And I think Mark Zuckerberg had a lot of foresight in acquiring Oculus early on and seeing that there was some future there. I will say with Facebook, one challenge is developers have been burned before by the Facebook platform. So there was all this excitement that, hey, Facebook platform is gonna be this big money making. I was there when Facebook platform launched at the F8 conference and every year and people were excited, like this could be the next big thing. And they thought it was maybe on par roughly with like the Apple platform, but it wasn't, you know, and Zynga was able to make a little bit of money for a little while. Spotify was able to get some usage, but we're not left with a lot of big companies that had been built off the Facebook platform the first time. That's kind of like Facebook platform 1.0. If you call this the true Facebook platform 2.0, that's the question is like, are there gonna be big companies being built? And I wonder if people still remember that that was hard to do the first time. Where Apple, for all the lawsuits you read about with Epic Games and people fight about their rev share, the bottom line is like Apple did help launch not just an ecosystem, but like a whole into a global industry of apps. Like it's incredible um, how many apps, how many huge companies have been built on this app ecosystem and made so much money, you know, billions and billions of dollars and Apple's own share of app store revenue, like boggles the mind. So the question is, this is Facebook's moment. It's an interesting observation, just with a US centric point of view. This is Facebook's chance to pull an Apple and maybe build a platform that actually can help everyone make as much money and be there. And they could, if they make it as accessible and as widespread and work it as well as Apple did with the iPhone app store launch, it could work. But, you know, the history of 10 years ago would say they weren't actually able to pull that off. And so that's the question. I do think you see people holding their breath saying, is this really Facebook's DNA to build a thriving ecosystem? Because um, that's hard to do. What I think Web3 and some of the, you know, Web3 advocates would tell you, um, and they might be right, is like, this is our chance to do it in the true promise of the original open web way of let's not have a messiah. Let's not have somebody who's, let's have it be all power to the people, bottoms up, not top down. The challenge is, I think then the, the gauntlet is down on web three to, to answer the question of like, what is the rallying cry that gets people together? What captures people's imagination? What gets them excited that they can all coalesce around the same thing. I think you've seen great examples, the Constitution Dow, which was a bit of a letdown at the end, but showed that people, do you remember how much they raised? Was it like $30 million in a, in a short period of time? I think it was like 30, yeah. I think it was like 30, 35 30, million. 30, 35 yeah. million in a short period of time. I mean, that was amazing, right? Not only to get crushed by like a hedge fund billionaire is kind of a sad, like a bad, you know, there's gotta be hopefully a part two of that movie, right? That feels like part one ended with the bad ending and then you need like part two to help uh, turn it around. And, uh, you know, the question is, can you pull that off in a decentralized way? And I think that would be super cool. And at the same time, you know, this, this more came up in the context of the metaverse. I think things that are hardware related, it does help to have that messiah, that, that leader who comes in and paints a very clear vision for a hardware platform. That helps people quite a bit to understand what's happening.
And I think, you know, when we were talking about this, you know, earlier, you also mentioned Elon Musk. He's been the closest candidate to Steve Jobs, I think, to take. There's, you know, Musk, Dorsey, people put up also as obviously with the Twitter platform and Square, just having done multiple companies and then Musk. But it is interesting with all of these uh, folks, because like Elon Musk, like Tesla is not a platform. So that's going to be, obviously, Musk is very, well, it seems like, not to speak for Elon Musk, but based on his Twitter feed and on what he says, very, very bullish about Web3 and crypto. But Tesla's not a platform. But it is, I think it's also quite interesting, too, how the founder-led person, uh, like, th- that's actually really want to explore at least Metaverse as a maybe one of the possible next paradigm shifts, Zuckerberg, how he's never talked about as being the next one, right? It's just, I, that's also quite fascinating too. Yeah, I don't know, you know, we could try to dissect like, what is it about Elon Musk? But I do think it's A, back to like, when there is a piece of hardware, actually, as the rallying cry, like the Tesla, such an obvious in your face, major step up in innovation. Facebook, by the way, I remember I was on Facebook when it launched. I think I was user number like, you know, 7,000 or something out of now the you know, I don't know if they've hit a billion or how many users they have. So I was very early to the platform and I remember when it launched in the early, it was pretty amazing feeling at that time. Of course, there was Friendster already, maybe MySpace already, I was already on. So, it, but, but it felt different and better and it was great to connect with people. But since then, and then Oculus, the first time you use it too, kind of amazing. But Elon Musk, as, and he's not the original founder, founder of Tesla, but essentially became the founder and inventor of the company and carried that vision forward. He just, he puts this piece of hardware and you drive it and you're like, wow, we didn't think electric cars were possible at scale. We were always told that it was not going to happen. And now it's happening. And then, wow. And then, you know, there's Starlink and there's satellites and there's rockets that are landing on like all these amazing. So you have this person who, and he's kind of like, uh, you know, Iron Man, he's making all these amazing things happen. And I think people just get really excited. He's very memeable. And so he is in a good position if he did want to throw the gauntlet down and say, this is the Web3 platform or vision that you should build for app developers. This is the metaverse you should build for, or this is the car app you know, platform, which he hasn't quite done. I think he has good currency to do so. He hasn't really built app platforms uh, thus far, interestingly. It's been more just building his own kind of stuff and not opening it up. When you're imagining the metaverse, obviously Facebook's going to have their version of the meta, but do you also see if the metaverse does take off and and become the next platform, that you're going to see companies building different components to it, but it's all kind of in evolved just as you, you know, turn on the browser and you can go to any website and and that's maybe the, the platform there. This is where I think there's no one definition of what this metaverse thing even is, right? And so if you take a more object-focused point of view, object and financial and economic, then that's where Web3 is part. So if it's like, hey, there's going to be a bunch of digital goods in this metaverse, NFTs, tokens, currencies, items, maybe organizations like DAOs. So there's going to be all these discrete things where like blockchain really works well as an underlying technology. Then that defines the metaverse in a very Web3 kind of way. But it's not the, to your point, it's not like this hardware-driven new experience, new paradigm shift on how we're consuming all that content. It's just, it's just kind of there in the digital world. we got to find ways. So that would be very decentralized. But 
if you take the virtual reality, augmented reality, it's about the visual or tactile or audio experience. And it's a new format of the way we're experiencing the content. The way mobile was like a new format above like the other. If it's, and that's where Facebook seems to, with its acquisition of Oculus, seems to have expended more of its energy on the, the actual like, you know, visual paradigm. That, unfortunately, it's tougher to get that to be decentralized, I think, that piece. Because you need, as Apple you know, keenly understood, you need kind of standardized hardware, standardized OS, standardized protocol, standardized APIs, standardized developer platforms. That's where it's, it, it's possible, you know, Android did this at scale with mobile, but even then that was kind of like tightly controlled and backed by Google in a way, right? Is, is Android really that open or is it just a little bit more open than iPhone? So, so yeah, so I think it's which metaverse are you talking about is the question. There is the Web3 open metaverse on objects, ownership, blockchain, NFTs, crypto, all of these kinds of concepts, but it's not an, a big, necessarily a big immersive experience you throw a headset on and you're in a new world necessarily. That's a really good point. But wanted to know, are you still taking a look at, you know, B2C marketplaces? Obviously, this is not Web3 oriented. This is um, this is slightly different. But what maybe opportunities are you seeing today or right now? Are you seeing like the main opportunities are B2B? So that's more your focus. Yeah, look, I'm definitely still looking at consumer marketplaces. And I'll give you some examples. I think there's interesting. So first of all, we just announced an investment in new breaks last week. So there are still amazing ideas out there. New breaks is like on demand auto repair. Somebody comes to your home. And this is a good example, like Uber really took advantage of the iPhone and said, Hey, you know, the iPhone's out, you can use GPS and ride hailing, like we can create a new dispatch system. So that was like a mobile 1.0, you could, you know, for lack of a better term idea. But new breaks like didn't need an exact launch of the iPhone to happen. And it's just an entrepreneur finding like here's a big industry with like a low net promoter score, but a, a, a very big opportunity for an improved experience. In the words of, you know, the customers I spoke with, like the best waiting room when you're waiting for your car to be fixed is not some auto mechanic kind of waiting room front office. It's your own living room. Why not just sit there, have someone come to your house, fix your car? It makes perfect sense. And, uh, you know, the United States is a very automobile, automobile driven country. That's how most people get around and commute to work, especially when you get outside of the densest part of the top two or three cities. Uh, and most people's cars are out of warranty and, out, you know, and they're paying to fix it themselves. So it's like a huge pain point. And for whatever reason, it was overlooked. And there is, you know, literally thousands of these overlooked ideas. Only a handful or a few dozen have the chance to be large public tech companies, you know, crack into the Fortune 500 or ideally Fortune, you know, 100 and, and really be big, you know, category defining companies. I think New Breaks has that opportunity, for example. I'm seeing other. And then you mentioned, you know, outside of Web3, but OpenSea is, you know, there's Web3 marketplaces, right? And that's an NFT marketplace consumer. OpenSea is a great one. I wish I had invested in OpenSea earlier on. And I think there's, there's going to be more innovation like that. So I think we're seeing consumer marketplaces all the time and, and still looking. At the same time, I'm also looking at labor marketplaces and B2B marketplaces like RESQ, um, which is restaurants like RES, the letter Q. And it's a restaurant software and services B2B marketplace that helps restaurants say restaurants, they earn a trillion dollars of revenue in North America, and then they spend 900 billion of that, 90% of it on costs. And so like, who's managing all that? Yeah, it's crazy, right? So you have all these software companies and marketplaces for restaurants on the front end, DoorDash, Uber Eats, you know, Toast, Square, all these service providers helping the payment and delivery and everything open table for reservations. 
But who's helping them on the back end, like keeping the restaurant afloat, helping all their service technicians and HVAC and plumbing and maintenance. And it's not as sexy. This is this thing of, you know, it wasn't the first thing maybe in founders' minds 10 years ago when the iPhone launched to like help take care of the, all the back of house of these restaurants. But now founders are like, hey, this is a marketplace opportunity. So technically a B2B marketplace, but supporting a large consumer category that I've looked at. So, that, so I'm also taking these large consumer categories like food tech and prop tech, real estate technology, and saying, where are the B2B opportunities? So my consumer bet you know, in, in prop tech is Fly Homes that helps reinvent the home buying experience. Like Fly Homes is doing an amazing job, but then on the back end, Darwin Homes is helping with property management, like doing that's kind of, you know, has marketplace elements to help you keep those homes going. And then on the front end, you've got like E24 where I, you know, used to work and DoorDash and Yelp. But then on the back end, you have Rescue. So you sometimes see these parallels of like the front end marketplace and the back end marketplace. So still a lot of marketplace opportunities, but you have to search far and wide to really get the compelling consumer marketplace opportunities. They're out there, but you got to search. No, that's good. That's really good to know. And we we had a Tashar from Fly Homes on on who's as you know fantastic, fantastic. So that was that was a really fun episode. Um, wanted to also know just maybe shifting back to to Web three. So how are you thinking about like like the future of VC? Any VC who is ignoring and saying like, oh, our model won't change based on, you know, Web three, crypto, blockchain, DAOs, all this stuff, is probably making a mistake. Like we look at this very carefully. I do think there's, you're seeing it now, you're seeing the rise of like solo capitalists, the amount of wealth that's just been created, crypto wealth that's being pumped back into companies is really the the magnitude is very large and like something we haven't seen before. So I do think it's changing the landscape quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know that there's too much more to say because the story is still being written. I, I guess I'll say this, in 10 years when we look back, I do think especially around Web3 and how Web3 and crypto companies get funded, it's going to be a very different model. It's going to, Now, the question is, is that going to spill over into like SaaS, consumer, marketplace business models, fin- like everything that's outside of Web3? Will there be similar VC funding models there? Probably, you know, like, is it, are things like DAOs and tokens, like are those going to take over and do the, anything more than a, a small percentage for those, uh, for those other categories? Maybe not, maybe it's possible, but within Web3, which is such a large area, I think people are eating their own dog food, drinking their own Kool-Aid and like actually, you know, using these alternative funding models and alternative ways of organizing themselves. And you're gonna see a lot of innovation there. There's a couple simple things to think about. There are, you know, so many billions of dollars uh, coming from limited partners, right? So there's all these large organizations, university endowments, family foundations, they all want to access innovation and technology because they know they can get returns that are somewhat uncorrelated from you know, other asset classes like the public markets, and they can provide an interesting new pool. Like David Swenson from Yale pioneered this by putting more of the Yale endowment into VC firms, and then everybody else followed, and it's, it's been a huge macro trend over the last several decades. I don't think that's going away. I don't think these limited partners are all on their own directly going to be able to invest in Web3 in a way that's going to take away. So you kind of, the role of a VC, of somebody who comes and says, hey, there's all this capital that wants to access technology. How do I help get this to the best projects, the best ideas? There will be some bottoms up that happens decentralized, but it just will be harder to happen all decentralized. You know what's a good analogy, I think? is retail stock investing versus institutional. Like 
there's this explosion in retail now. Like E-Trade started it, you know, a while ago and, and made retail and Schwab made retail investing a bigger deal. But now Robinhood put that on steroids. And now you've got meme stocks and everyone. So there's this massive uptick in retail investing. But that doesn't mean institutional is going to go away, right? And so VC is like the institutional. But the retail tech invest, retail startup investing has never taken off the way retail public market investing has taken off. And maybe you're going to see a boom in retail tech investing empowered by, you know, Web3, DAOs, ISO, whatever format that takes, but something around blockchain and crypto powering that. So with all this being said, Mike, about what the next paradigm shift is, and the jury's still not out yet about it, but are there any theories that you've heard of the next consumer technological shift that you don't believe? One that I was always skeptical about was the voice devices, and I think it's more obvious to people now, being iPhone-level platform, like really having that potential to, to take off to that level. I think voice apps, it's just difficult. They're a little bit too limited in kind of UI. I think they, they have certain functions, like they're very useful. It might get a very large install base, but I don't think it's going to take over and, and you know, have that kind of problem. And not, it's not going to be like the next big thing to the scale that iPhone, Apple was able to do or, you know, Web3 is looking like now. Similarly, chat apps and chat box, that was one that had a lot of hype that I just don't see as I think chat bots and chat app, like that'll always be, um, you know, and, and again, this is not necessarily voice chat. It could be, but this is like typing chat. People thought that was a big thing. I think they'll probably always be embedded in some other bigger platform. Like it's, uh, you know, swallowed into mobile or AR, VR, something else is chatting within that context. I think VR is the one that people love to love and love to hate. It's one of the most divisive, but I wouldn't write it off. I would say the problem with VR is it's still, I remember, you know, I was investing and looking at mobile as a, as a large area of investment starting around 2006. And everyone said, this is the year of mobile. And then it wasn't. And 2007, even when the iPhone launched, it was like, this is the year of mobile. But it wasn't because you could only do mobile web and there were no mobile apps. And then 2008, the App Store launched. And it was like, this is the year of mobile, but it hadn't launched at the start of the year. I think it launched like, they usually do it in October or late summer. So 2008 was like, maybe this is the year of mobile, but still wasn't. And finally, 2009 to late 2008 was the year. So there were multiple false starts. And I feel like there's a little bit of that with VR and metaverse. It's like, this is the year it's happening. And, and we might be waiting even longer on that one. Um, so it's, I'm not saying it's not ever going to happen, but I do think people might just be holding their breath, holding their breath a little longer than they thought. Well, at least in terms of entrepreneurial energy and effort and mindshare, Web3 is the one where it's now this is the year, like it's happening. Um, you know, some people were like, one year was the year of like the Dow and one year was the year, like maybe this year was NFT and next year was the year of the Dow. They're like, slicing it up. But overall, if you just say this Web3 umbrella area, this has certainly been the year of that and next year will be. What we don't know, as, as discussed, is that going to translate into a broad-based consumer platform that founders can build consumer apps with, with the gusto they did on iPhone and other platforms that remains to be seen. My final question for you is, what's like one piece of advice for consumer-oriented technological founders that are kind of building during these times? Remember that your fresh look or even some might call naive view 
of how things work is very much an advantage. Like people will talk to a, a crusty old VC, you know, I don't want to say like me because I try and keep a very open mind, but a, a stereotypical VC, uh, not like me, who's less open-minded and, and someone will tell them, or maybe, a, you know, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a peer, maybe it's a boss. Someone will tell them this will never work, kind of like that. And then you can't do this. This has been tried before. Oh, I tried this seven times. I, you know, when podcast entrepreneurs would come to me, I would say, look, don't even take my advice on podcasts because I've like cut my teeth in it. And there could be some huge opportunity I'm not familiar with that I might be missing. Like you take your fresh look and open-minded view and the fact that you're not jaded by like what's happened before as a huge advantage that you have. It's like part of your kind of really superpower and think big and don't be chained by the past view of what was and wasn't possible. But instead, just think with a blank slate what you think could be possible and kind of dare to dream and think big, you know, not to sound kind of uh, cheesy about it. But that's and then that that's the other advice I give all the founders I invest in, I work with is remember that ultimately you're recruiting missionaries, not mercenaries. So like take that vision that you have for the future and use that to recruit missionaries, like recruit people who really believe in what you're doing that aren't there for the money. I hear a lot of founders complain about how hard it is to hire these days and you have to pay people so much. And it is hard. It's harder than it's ever been. But if you paint a clear vision of why you're changing the world in a really fascinating way, you can then convince people to come work for very little and take big pay cuts and way, way less than they could make elsewhere because they believe in you and they believe in the vision of what you're doing. And you have to constantly communicate that. Like that's, you have two jobs as a founder is communicating that vision to recruits, employees, to co-founders, every customers, uh, venture capitalists, people you're fundraising in the capital market. So that's number one, chief vision, you know, sharer and recruiter. And then goal number two is if you raise money and cash and you're not profitable, don't run out of cash. You run out of cash, that's your oxygen, you die. So like keep that cash. So like if you do those two things, you can win. Well, Mike, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Honored again to be your first, second time guest. Thanks so much, man. And there you have it. It was amazing having Mike on the podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at New Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.